You're listening to SHL's Trendlines podcast, where we invite experts in talent management to discuss top trends in people science that help businesses thrive because their people thrive. Hello and welcome to Trendlines with Lance Andrews and Aaron Krask, the SHL Talent Talks podcast, where we chat with experts to get their take on top trends in talent management, leadership, and industrial and organizational psychology. And today, it's our pleasure to have Lisa Gutierrez, the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer from Indiana University Health, here to chat with us about diversity, inclusion, and belonging in the workplace. Lisa, will you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah. Hello, everybody. Um, I always say that my tagline for myself is, I, my passion is connecting the dots between amazing people, their backgrounds, and solving complex problems. And I've now done that in nine industries and seven great organizations. I started out a lot of my work and this diversity work before it was really called this um, with Procter & Gamble. I've worked with Deloitte Consulting. Um, I worked at the University of California, um, Los Alamos National Lab. That one was fun when you have uh, your 15,000 people, I have 5,000 PhDs who are either number one, two or three in the world. So that took my diversity um, practitioner um, muscles to a whole different level when you work there. I've worked at Cummins, um, and uh, I'll share a little bit in terms of diversity. I always build my stuff into the rhythm of an organization, and at Cummins, it was Six Sigma there, um, and they had a, they'd had a diversity commitment since 1961. So thinking about how you do that, and um, prior to IU Health, I was at Cardinal Health, and um, now at IU Health. This is my first time in what I would call business-to-consumer healthcare. I was extremely resistant to getting into healthcare, and now I'm just so glad I am. It is probably the most purpose-driven um, pieces of work I've ever done. And I'm working on things I've never thought of in this space. So I'm really excited because a lot of my diversity background, I started out um, also as a recruiter. So I was a recruiter as well. So I was a recruiter for about a year and a half. Um, and, and just even understanding that whole process and how you bring people in was really important to my diversity strategies now. That is an absolutely fascinating background and thinking about your role in, in healthcare and how there, there, there's that patient and employee intersection of how do we support diverse cultures in both of those ways, internally and externally. And so I'm very excited to start digging in to your background in healthcare. But I also wanted to ask you before we jump into that healthcare specific conversation, when you think about your background and your experiences, what methodologies or learning do you find yourself relying on most in your work? Thanks for that question. I think it's really interesting because I, a lot of times in the DEI space, you think that the answer to that is going to be cultural knowledge. I have traveled to over 31 countries. I've worked um, in terms of these strategies with companies that have been in 80 countries, I mean, 80 countries, um, 60 countries, 50 countries. But interestingly enough, what I found myself relying on was a methodology I used to teach. It's called decision mapping but it's really how do you map out decisions in an organization? Who's an owner of a decision? Who are influencers to decisions? And then how do you implement the decision? Who are the implementers of the decision? And a lot of that methodology was thinking about it in a very high-performing team way, but a holistic way and kind of mapping it. So for me, it's a lot like chess, but it's thinking about, all right, last year, for example, thinking about the decision of how do we get um, COVID-19 vaccines to everybody that was dealing with the pandemic as a first responder. Now, a lot of, the, a lot of the, the research at the time or a lot of the recommendations at the time said to obviously focus on clinicians, but we had environmental service workers. We had nutrition and diet workers that were also going into the same rooms, right? That could have the same um, opportunity for getting infected from the pandemic. 
So we did at IU Health working with, again, some of the owners of those decisions, our chief medical executives, um, they were our epidemiologists. Um, and I was reading medical papers, you know, like 10 times I'd be reading them. and I'm like, okay, I think I understand this. But what we ended up doing was really thinking about who's the first responder. And we built our every worker. So our environmental service workers were considered if they were going in and working with pandemic um, patients, they were considered a first responder as well. So they had first dibs on the vaccines. Um, and so again, thinking about it, not being hierarchical, right. But also thinking about Again, what's the what's the end game? And the end game was keeping them safe and keeping everybody safe who was dealing with that. So, but the decision wasn't made in a diversity decision, right? The decision was made by a different decision owner. Um, there are a lot. So I, I considered myself in that instance um, an evaluator or an influencer. Um, and then how we implemented that, um, again, we implemented it through rolling out the vaccines um, through various um, options and opportunities for patients. It excited me because at the end of the day, I wanted to be able to say we are providing those options for people, whether or not they choose to take them, right, is on their own. So decision mapping methodology is the one that I rely on a lot, all the time, every day, everywhere. Um, and then I tweak it based on the context that I'm in, right? Like if, I'm, if I notice that I'm working at the top with owners of decisions, but I haven't brought in the implementers, and some of those implementers a lot of times are HR people, or if you're working on a talent acquisition strategy, it's gonna be your recruiters. So building in their voices earlier into the process um, helps you get a better, um, not only a better process, but better decisions. So I find myself doing more of that. And it's so funny because I think I learned that methodology back when I was in sales with Procter & Gamble, probably in the late 90s. So. Yeah, it's interesting, Lisa, and thanks for sharing that. I mean, that decision mapping, does that allow you to just to essentially tailor the way that the decision will get made, how you get to the consensus or the agreement because you mentioned working at Cummins and manufacturing organization, lean, the Six Sigma process. So the way that decisions are made there are probably very data-driven and, you know, oh my gosh, Lance, show that thank improvement. You, thank you for that, because that's exactly what I found myself. I've been doing this since 1995, but it turns out that I was building it, I call it into the rhythm of the business. So if you take yeah, Cummins, the rhythm like of that. the business was Six Sigma rhythm, right? Mm -hmm. Now, methodology says you're trying to reduce variation. So yeah. Equity and inclusion is increasing variation, right? So, so I, yeah. 2,000 people are saying, wait, I just learned all kinds of things to reduce variation. And now she's coming in and telling me to increase variation. Are you crazy? So I found um, lots of research um, in that methodology that there's different places to build in variation, like the brainstorming, the KJ process, whatever. And, but eventually to get the best decisions, you can't have a variation of you know, 10, 20, 30 options. Eventually you have to narrow it down, make a decision and take something over the goal line. So what I did was just start building D, E, and I, or diversity, equity, and inclusion decisions, thinking into the parts of the methodology it was so much fun. And Procter & Gamble, a lot of that was tied to marketing and sales and consumers. Yeah. So I just built that in. And in healthcare, it, the rhythm of that is tied to how we deliver care. And so I'm going to give you an example. When I came to IU Health, we had a, um, there was some training that we had done um, trying to um, help uh, people reduce or de-escalate, but also help our team members be able to deal with patients that were racist, patients that are mean, patients that are awful. Sure. Um, and, but there was some training. Well, it was an eight hour training. So it was great training, great content. The problem is the rhythm of trying to take our human beings out of their day jobs for eight hours to take that, yeah. this wouldn't work. So when I, I went on a quest, so people, uh, they said, okay, we want this, 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 this. So I went on a quest in terms of the problem to try and figure out the problem. And then also try and find the solution and found a solution that's a two-hour training solution. 
that delivers the learning and the methodology, the way that works within the rhythm of how nurses and physicians and clinicians work. Oh my gosh. So they were like happy. So people have, even through the pandemic, people have been, we, we call it a rolling adoption. They've just been building it into their rhythm. And then the reminders of how to keep that muscle memory without learning is through roundings. It's through 15 minute, you know, connection. So, yeah, so I've been playing with this way of doing it since 1995. And it turns out that um, it's kind of a sustainable way, right? Because people know their rhythm. I come in more like an anthropologist. I found out I'm working with an anthropologist. He goes, you're actually an anthropologist. <laughs> okay, thank you. I said, I haven't studied for it. But it's like watching the rhythms, watching how people really do that, and then figuring, it, figuring out the intersections with where diversity, equity, and inclusion can you know, just be tweaked or go in and then help them get to their goals, not yeah. get to my goals. So get to their goals and building in that rhythm. So um, I, let, I let people play with it. So it's, fun. it's so much fun, right? It's so much fun. And, and um, then you get a chance to see, oh, wait, I had an assumption that that rhythm would work here and it's not. Why? Oh, okay. You know, there's an implementer maybe that's really driving some of the process because uh, people are relying on him and her. So then I go bring their voice in um, earlier and then figure it out. That's great. Lisa, I've had the privilege of seeing you do some of these workshops live when you're talking about taking things from an eight hour or training down from eight hours to two hours. How do you have these conversations that meet the business where they are in their context, in their language? And it's really powerful and it's exciting to see. And when everyone goes into a meeting and they're, they know that somebody from the diversity inclusion office, even the chief diversity inclusion officer is going to be speaking, we have these perceptions in our mind of what's going to happen. Yeah. And when I saw you speak, it just blew my mind and really opened my eyes to how diversity and inclusion really works in an organization when, it, when it's a game changer and, um, and how everyone has a part in the conversation. And Everyone has ownership in that conversation about diversity and inclusion. And I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you go about that. How do you create that common sense of ownership that everyone owns the DEI strategy and everyone belongs in that conversation? I think, you know, in any, in any leader journey, they always say things like, you know, if, you're, if you have a mentor, you always say, people always say things like, I learn more, you know, mentoring somebody, right? As a, a practitioner in this space, if you aren't shifting yourself yeah. out, and I've, I shifted as the younger practitioner in me, okay, wanted, I, I didn't realize until I started um, kind of shifting some things was that I had some assumptions and I was designing towards those assumptions. And one of those assumptions was <clears throat> going into a diversity training, for example, they don't get it. So I'm going to help them get it, right? And what was happening to your point, Aaron, um, when the diversity leader would come in, there was this barrier, almost like, oh, great, you know, they, there's a little bit of fear. People were immediately feeling like, okay, I'm going to be wrong or bad. Something's going to, you know, what's going to happen? And I did some, a lot of work and reading on positive psychology. And I don't, I don't know if you, you guys probably do, obviously, the Gallup book, but um, there was a, what was it? Um, Is that the first Break All the Rules book? or was, The one right before that, the, um, what was it? One where you have to just say everything positive. It was, it was, uh, I forget. It was one of those books and it was tied to the precursor with Gallup and first break out of the rules, but it was tied to, and I did it with an organization was you couldn't say anything negative. You had to, if you were giving feedback, you had to get feedback in a positive, uh, in a positive way. You had to find something positive. And that's when I realized that we do a lot of things in terms of talent management, HR, performance management. We start with gaps. If you think about it like this, um, you tell your kids, your kid comes home 
and you say, oh, what did you get in your grades? They always say, well, I got a 70%, you know, I got, or I missed 30%, or it was always the, the gap. This book was, um, was really about, you couldn't do that in the gap. And so I started wondering on the diversity side, was I doing that, right? Was I looking at it as, as if it was a gap? And so I started looking at my own assumptions and started changing them up. So one of my assumptions now is everyone is a good person. That's an assumption. A second assumption is every, you know, everybody doesn't know what diversity and inclusion is. Okay. And then in a room, when I would say that you'd have people that thought they know, they're like, yeah, I know it. And then you had people say, wow, thank God she said that. Cause I really don't know what this diversity, equity, and inclusion thing is. But I started realizing that I had to shift and what I had to decide as a practitioner in this space is, do I really like differences or not? Diversity is about differences and I love them. I, my passion is I like differences. I'm curious about them. Um, I love them. I, not all of them, right? But I like finding them out. I like learning what's different there. But as you start doing that, you start finding similarities. You start finding consistencies and you start going, wait, that's similar to what we did in my family. I found out, for example, in Indiana, that when I started, so when I started asking people, we started using a dimensions wheel to say, find your story on this dimensions wheel. And some of your story might be tied to your race. It might be tied to your ethnicity, but maybe it's tied to how you grew up on a farm. Maybe it's tied to the fact that you were a foster kid. Maybe it's tied to that. And given that, this is what my belief started shifting to is that's a superpower. And if that's your superpower and that's the root of your superpower, then how can we tap into that and use that superpower to either help you get your work done or help us get our work done? When I started shifting my language and started getting excited about people's differences or their superpowers, people just started unleashing. They started telling me like, I think I have a superpower here. And I'm like, yes, come in here, figure it out. And I'll give you an example of how that played out. I was at Procter & Gamble and this was probably the late nineties. I'm in California. Um, so if you think about going into grocery stores, um, you had the Albertsons, you had the Smiths, now obviously Kroger, you had all those kinds of things, but you also had a changing marketplace, demographic marketplace of lots of immigrants coming to California. Yeah. So we had Vietnamese, it was the largest Vietnamese population outside of Vietnam in Orange County, which is where I was. We had, you know, I think at the time when I was in California, over a hundred different cultures, they weren't buying through the grocery stores. Sure. They, Creating their own. The Mexican uh, bodegas were growing. The Asian grocery stores were growing. Vietnamese. It was one of those things where at, at Procter & Gamble's way of marketing and everything was good, but it was, it's kind of like, you know, PNG had created the soap operas for commercials and now people don't watch commercials, right? They're, they're getting their TV through, through Netflix so you can skip through commercials. Um, so at the time it was that kind of a purchasing and, and everybody was struggling. And I happened to have a multicultural resource team um, that I designed and it had bunches of people. So I brought this problem to them and I said, okay, we're, we're struggling. We're struggling with how to sell to Asian grocery stores. We're struggling to how to sell the Mexican bodegas and Vietnamese dentists. These individuals, you know, they were young sales reps right out of college. They're like, I know what to do. They helped us figure out, we reconfigured our, our marketing processes for Vietnamese dentists. And in a popular, in a business that was going like this, suddenly the business started going up. And suddenly the, the Cincinnati people called me and they said, okay, wait, wait, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Um, the Mexican bodegas, the Asian bodegas, we found out, for example, that the Asian salespeople, when they were walking into the Asian grocery stores, we had a, we had a proctor process. Hello, go find the decision maker, shake your hand. We found out that they were doing one extra step. They were acknowledging the elder in the room and it could have been an elder pushing a broom, doing a cash register. And it turns out in many cases that elder was a key influencer to the decision maker because they were a family member. 
those, those sales reps, superpower, teaching other people that superpower, we suddenly had people from other countries and other cultures and other backgrounds saying, wait, I'm going to go try that because that was my territory. I'm going to try that. I had a white man <laughs> calling me and going, Lisa, this thing is so helpful. My sales have gone up. When you bring in business differently, when you save money differently, and when you leverage people's superpowers, and you're starting to solve the real problems of whatever the organization is, right? If you're a selling organization, you're trying to solve problems. If you're at Cummins, we were really working on engineering problems, and we solve some of those by people thinking about it differently from Mexico, thinking about it differently from China and Brazil. So for me, thank you, Aaron, for bringing that up. I've just been, I've been shifting, and I had to shift. I had to shift first as a practitioner. I had to shift and look at people and say, wow, I wonder what their superpower is. And then based on that, where did you get your superpower? Tell me more about your story. And then when you find out their story, people start sharing. And then usually what happens is people want to use their superpower and they want to show you. And a lot of times you'll find out they're using their superpower in their faith home, but they're not using it at work. So I'm trying to say, hey, you're a leader over there. <laughs> Can you try it over here? Um, use that example in the behavioral event interviews, right? Use that example. And I would have people going, I didn't know I could use that one. Use that one to explain that you know how to lead when you're applying for a leadership position. So that's how I've been playing with it a little. Um, it, it's working more. I, I would say that I, as I've been developing um, my understanding too, it's, it's hard sometimes. It's harder because it's not a linear concept. It's harder to tell people like that. Sometimes people say, just tell me what you want me to do. And I was just like, I want you to figure it out first. And then I've had, I've had people say, you know, I don't, I don't know what my cultural superpowers are or what my super, let me think about it. But they can't stop thinking about it. My longest time was I had a guy that went through one of my training classes and it was 11 months later. And he called me and he said, my boss told me to call you. He said, cause I've been, it's been bugging me for 11 months. He said, I've got to talk to you and how I, what I think my superpower is and how I want to use it with my team. That was 11 months. The shortest time was three hours. I had a leader that kept bubbling and he, kept bothering me and he's like, okay, I think this is what it is. And I want to figure out how do I take it to another level and how I'm leading my team. So I think it's fun. It's fun. And it, it's an inclusive way that allows everybody to figure out where they fit in the diversity, equity, and inclusion journey. Getting, getting that connection from it being a, like a top-down thing, we're going to be more inclusive. We're going to be more diverse to, I hear that spark that aha moment. Like, here's how acknowledging the, the differences and understanding the cultural differences between, you know, at the Me Mexican bodega or at the Vietnamese grocery store, how that helps me in my job and how that just makes it easier for us to do business and like making those aha moments. How, how do you, you made it sound pretty easy to get that, that uh, people to acknowledge your superpower, but how do you actually create that, those sparks or those recognitions, moments of recognition with people at the ground level? Um, I think you have to, okay, <laughs> I change metaphors a lot. So one of the questions I think we were going to talk about was also, you know, what have I done as I've shifted globally? I've, I shift my metaphors and my examples, so I simplify them. I use, I, I use dating as a metaphor a lot. So I think what you have to do, Lance, is you have to build spaces for people. You put them in a room, not, it's like a match.com. You just, you, you create, sometimes it's a forced thing. But then you build in high-performing team principles. Like I, I build in things like let's share a little bit about your background, you know, and it could be anything, um, any, anything, you know. Um, I'm using uh, a tool I use for my own team. It's called Head, Heart, Hands. Um, tell us what's in your head. Tell us what you're working on in terms of your hands. But the heart one is the best. It's my favorite because in a very short period of time, you start finding out more about who people are, what they're thinking about, what they're worried about. 
and I build it into my regular staff meetings. And that little thing then gets you a better way. Like one of mine, I found out one of my team members, for example, on one of one-on-one, we were doing something and she's like, she was, she, we had finished up the one-on-one and then she's in tears. And I was like, okay, wait, what happened? She's like, okay, I just want you to know that I'm going to have a baby and I really love my job and I don't want to miss. And I was like, and I was just sitting there and I'm thinking, she's crying and I'm thinking, okay, what, what do I do? Right. And then she said, what do you think about it? And I'm like, congratulations, you know, <laughs> I like babies, you know, but I'm like, okay, but what's, you know, what's the problem? And she's like, well, you know, I, I don't want you to think I'm not serious. I go, I know you're serious. Okay. And then she started asking me questions like about, you know, maternal leave. And I go, I haven't had a baby on my team in the longest time. I don't know. I said, we'll figure it out. But um, she's a project manager. And I said, you know, you're a project manager, superpower. And I said, why don't we do this? She goes, what? I go, why don't you projectize your maternity leave? Projectize it in everywhere and let us know. And then, so she did. And I said, the intention would be that you have a great maternity leave. You have a great baby and you come back to, you know, excitement. So we had, she had projectized what we, what needed, what we needed to do on her pieces of work so that when she got back, we were ready to rock and roll. It was the best. So what I do is I think I make it very practical. I think you have to build it into how people think. In her, in, in her case, I knew that the way she thinks is in a project management. That's what, that's her comfort. I, that's why I hired her. So, all right, let's use that, right? Let's use that. I don't know the maternity thing, but we'll figure it out together. Yeah. It was the funniest and best experience ever. Um, cause that was, she had a baby in the middle of the pandemic. So we had her maternity plan and then we'd go we'd, in our, our meetings, we'd go, okay, where are we in her maternity plan? <laughs> Have we done what she said we're supposed to be doing right now? So I think you, and that goes to honestly, the other, the other methodology I do rely on a lot is situational leadership. It's really thinking about individuals and just shifting it. But I, I do think the way I do it is a little bit messier than, you know, let's go do, you know, let's go do, let's go create a diversity council. Let's create diversity training. Um, I'm the person that says, what problem are you trying to solve? If you're trying to solve an engagement problem, then let's work on engagement solutions. No, let's not just do training. Um, when I worked at Cardinal Health um, in my three and a half years there, we had 40 acquisitions in four years. Okay, so the diversity strategy as I was working with some of those leaders was an inclusion strategy was those individuals were, you know, being, you know, sold from one company to another and they were just like, they didn't feel connected. So when people talk about belonging, you can't talk about diversity belonging unless you can talk about how do you help them belong to your current organization with a mission, vision and the values. So with those leaders, when I went in to work on a diversity strategy, I said, why don't we focus on inclusion? Why don't we focus on helping them feel connected? to the current organization, to their mission, their vision, their values, to their day jobs. And then as they feel that connectedness and that belonging, then we start connecting the dots into what's different, right? What's different? Because the difference that they were experiencing was the different culture that I had in my old company versus the one in the new. You can't ignore that. And so to come in and, and, and pretend like, okay, let's go do this diversity thing because the methodology says you should do it A, B, C, D, E, I focus on, well, maybe E is the one that's going to bring um, everybody connected together to deliver what the, what the leader wants. And then because you're focusing on E, they work backwards and they'll say, I'll do B, I'll do C, I'll do A. So I don't know. It's messier. It's <laughs> I like messy. I like finding clarity in the messy, but it's a little messier, but it also creates a situation where people start owning their own DEI journey and they aren't... Um, they aren't requiring a lot of times they aren't requiring me. They'll, they'll call me as more of a consulting kind of level and say, Hey, we're trying this. We're trying this. What do you think about this? I'm like, okay, you might get stuck here. So bring me in here, but keep it going. Let me know how it goes. 
That's the the scalability in the individuality. And that's the, how are you making the leaders? How are you setting those leaders up for success and making sure that they can do their own team so that you're the consultant, you're the person who pops in and gives that moment of advice rather than has to run that for an organization of some 35,000 people. It's not you creating and executing on a strategy across the board. It's empowering that whole organization to own that, which is which is just a fascinating methodology to do it. And again, getting back to that, creating that ownership. Yeah. And I think the last question for you today that I would love to ask is, you know, you mentioned the pandemic and there have been so many um, interconnections between the pandemic and the implications on different populations, whether it's socioeconomic or racial and the way that those are tied together. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about, especially from a healthcare perspective, how has this work or how has the pandemic changed what your focus is or how you have to work or how, how what impact has this had in, in your world? I think it's been a couple, but when I think of the pandemic or if you think about you know the coronavirus pandemic, the other pandemic that was really accelerating and shifting my strategies was the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, yes. right? And that um, really that refreshing and focus of you know a civil rights movement, right? Um, one of the shifts um, when you saw that globally, Gen Z, Gen Z was really pushing on um, that focus around the globe um, in a way that hasn't been done. Um, it had been done in the 60s here in the United States and in different places, but not on such a global level. So for me, when I think about the pandemic, Aaron, I think about not only the, the COVID, coronavirus pandemic, thinking about that. And for me, so a couple things. Um, again, going back to the decision mapping methodology, under the coronavirus thing with the diversity thing, I had to slow down some of the DEI stuff because many of those same people were accelerating their commitment and care around the pandemic. And, and I mean, we're going on two years of it. At the beginning of it, if we all recall last year, we didn't know. We didn't know enough about it. We didn't know what was going on. Daily things were changing. So I would say that the primary strategy we were doing was really giving love to um, team members and giving love to, um, to patients. One of my favorite things that we did here at IU Health was we called the Weary Well, and it was designed for a lot of our um, our clinicians that were afraid to go home and infect their children. And we had created spaces for them in hotels, spaces for them to sleep, even people that were driving long hours. You know, you need to sleep because before you can. We don't want you driving home um, tired, right? Those kinds of things. That those kinds of things really were about thinking about differences, but thinking about those distinctions that people needed and your, your past, you know, if you hadn't thought about doing that, you know, a lot of times policies would say, well, you only get to use a hotel for this reason. Mm -hmm. um, looking at lots of those processes and saying, what do we need to do to care for people? We were one of the few health systems that didn't furlough anybody. Um, and in that situation, that, that many of our employees became the sole um, source of, um, of resources for their family, right? So it's thinking of things like that. So I ended up really kind of shifting um, towards a lot of those kinds of systems saying, what do we need? We did establish um, a racial equity, lots of racial equity um, commitments. And my focus there was not just on saying it's bad, but did we commit to actual things? And we did. And so it's exciting now, because um, again, we we're following through on them. So we're following through and saying, we said this, we're doing this. We said this, we're doing that. That builds trust with organizations. Um, but I would say what the pandemic did, the other big thing was really working remotely. And I'm sure you guys have had conversations on this as well. 
Um, and that's where it gets into differences as well, is really thinking about how do you manage people uh, virtually um, and creating that head, heart, hands I use. It's worked to the point that my team kept saying, we want the head, heart, hands, you know, and it was really when you're virtually still finding out people's stories. Um, it got so funny. We had one person on my team that she would always forget she was on mute. And just randomly, my team one time, everybody put up the backdrop and it said, you're on mute. <laughs> it's just so funny. <laughs> you know, so I think um, humor, but I think it's that constant. It doesn't really change if you're open to being a situational leader and you're adapting to your people and adapting what they need. You just have to adapt to a different context, which meant, you know, we have to wear masks. Now we don't. Yes, we do. You know, that person, one, I had one individual on my team, for example, that he had um, more deaths, uh, COVID-19 deaths in his family early on. And he was really a gauge for me to say, what do you need from the rest of us? Because um, even the, the CDC and lots of things, people weren't sure what to do. So some people are saying it doesn't exist. And he's like, I've had four deaths in my family. So I think it does exist here. And I would just ask him, what does he need? At a system level, I think our incident command process was amazing. It really helped um, keep the process of people talking to each other daily. We were shifting meetings daily. You know, the leaders are talking now. Now the next level down is talking. And then HR, we would say, okay, given those pieces of information, how do we need to shift? Um, that ability to do that um, was really, I think, important. It's an interesting thing. I call it muscle memory. I think you develop a muscle memory there, and then you start thinking about how do you keep that muscle memory going in a new reality um, where people do want to work remotely or they want to work in a, you know, in a varied way, you know, the ability to come in, the ability to stay at home. Um, and then some of my team members, I'll tell you this much, they have children and the school systems. I mean, just this year, uh, bus drivers, there aren't enough bus drivers. So I've had people tell me I can't come into work because my kid, I have to teach my kid again, you know, at home. And so you're just like, I think as a leader, you just have to keep saying, okay, this is, this is, this is life. This is life. I believe in work-life integration. I believe, I believe in integrating your work with your life and figuring it out. And I don't think there's balance. So I think that, okay, what does somebody need now versus what they needed then? So I think the pandemic really, I think built a lot of that muscle, quite frankly, in a lot of people, whether or not they wanted to build yeah. it. It was like, suddenly we're all in the same gym, whether or not you want to be at the gym, you're still in the same gym. And, yeah. and now the question is, you know, when people say things like going back, I'm just like, I don't know what back means. What is back? Yeah. I don't know what back to what. <laughs> it's back to which part of the changed process. And I think um, you just have to keep building it. So, you know, again, this work as a DNI leader or having been in talent acquisition, having been in talent management, it's different. There's some similarities, but it's different. And the ability to shift with that change um, and then still get results, still get results, I think is really is really the, the outcome from any big shift, whether it's a pandemic, the economic downturn in 2008, 9, 10, we had to, I mean, around the globe, we had to figure out what that meant um, in terms of jobs and how, how people were working. So, you know, to me, it's just another shift, but it's a huge shift. I think it's good. It's going to continue to play out for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Lisa, this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for giving us this time this morning. Yeah, um, just the enlightening discussion about the way you approach this topic, the way that DEI weaves into business, the way that you know the, we meet people where they are and the individual part of this is just an absolutely fascinating conversation. It's so important. And if there are folks out there who want to learn a little bit more about the way you work or things that inspire you or how your methods have come together, is there a place where you'd recommend people to go to learn more? 
I would say a construct, if you would, is Josh Burson. Josh yeah. stuff. He just did a recent study on DEI, um, and it's so good. And it's really talks a little, it actually, I don't know if it's confirmation bias, probably, <laughs> but it confirms a lot of the way I've been doing it, but about integrating and doing those pieces. So I would say Josh Burson stuff is really good. Deloitte always has good stuff. Sure, sure you do too. But I pick and choose from different places, right? I mean, I'm finding that there's pieces of learning, um, again, from scientists. I use University of California stuff. So I think, you know, whatever that is, I would say one thing to everybody is broaden your sources, broaden your go-to sources. You know, having, again, done this in nine industries, um, what people value in engineering is a little different than what people value in consumer uh, products. But then you find out, oh, that's a little bit similar to here. What if I use that? Um, I work with the scientists. What if I use that logic evolved decision-making tool over here and damned if it doesn't work, right? What if I use that thing that I learned in Brazil or China over here um, in Indiana and then it works. So I find myself doing more of that, Aaron. So I don't, I don't have one go-to place, but I would say that decision mapping, um, the guy that I learned it from was Chris, was, was Rich Holdap. Um, but I'm sure there's some other decision uh, mapping methodologies or technologies, but it's really, I think about thinking about the decisions and not the, not always the, the who thinking about how decisions are made and in very fixed organizations, that's challenging, right? That's very challenging. And sometimes people don't stop. They think I've talked to a leader, but they don't stop and think that decision needs to get out to these other, you know, 15,000 people and the people that will let them, it is somebody completely different than that person I just talked to. So I would, that kind of a methodology, I would say the business part of business, whatever that is for people. In healthcare, that's for, I've been reading more medical journals to understand how people think, how they talk, um, but why they're using this piece of research. Um, and then I'm looking at a different piece of research saying, okay, given those two pieces of research, which research is the research that we're gonna build some actions around? Sometimes you need to look a little bit at both of them because your, your context, um, different organizations relying on different things. So I'm sorry. That's great. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, that's Here's perfect. the same answer. It depends. it depends. It depends. This is fantastic. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so grateful for your time. Thank, thank you, you for asking me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to SHL's Trendlines podcast. To learn more about how SHL helps companies leverage their greatest asset, their people, please visit shl.com.